What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. We are running it back. We got round two with Meyer. Um, everyone loved uh, having him on the first time, so can't wait. We got a lot more to discuss. Um, Meyer, what's up? How you doing? What up? Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. So, okay, so we are talking about Elon Musk's tweet saying that the market is giving Tesla a lot of credit for their robo-taxi or self-driving car business already. Um, you disagree with that point and say that there's still upside based on Tesla just building electric vehicles. And you were even messaging me after our last episode being like, can we reshoot it? Can we reshoot it? Like, I actually forgot to make this one argument saying like it would justify an even higher upside um, without, you know, the, the robo-taxi business. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's, let's back up a little bit here. So Remember, we were talking about return on invested capital the last time, right? So the reason, again, why that's so important, especially for investors like us, is because it's directly related to the end or terminal multiple that the shares will trade at, right? So, for example, if Tesla had an average return on invested capital, meaning, you know, right in line with where the other automakers are, around 8 to 10%, right? We saw that slide before where Toyota, GM, Ford, they're all at somewhere between 8 to 10% on average long-term. If that's what Tesla was able to do at most, then ultimately what would happen is that Tesla's multiple will ultimately trade down to where GM and Ford and Toyota are, which is like 10 times earnings, right? At most 12 to 13 times earnings. So at 850 billion market cap, as, as of today, it might be slightly even higher. Um, that would mean that even if Tesla did $100 billion in profit at some point, right? And if it traded at 10 multiple, then the target would be a trillion dollars, which would be a very small upside to where it is today versus where it is today, right? So that's why ROIC is so critical because when you have a high ROIC and when you're compounding the capital on increasing invested capital, meaning more and more money that's deployed into factories, into battery production, um, into R&D um, to, you know, to progress forward, you know, autonomous driving, as well as better and better batteries with better density, you know, for example, 4680. As long as they're deploying lots and lots of capital and earning a very high return on that invested capital, then Tesla will have an exit multiple much, much higher than what automakers are at right now. And that's why I've made the comparison that I think Tesla will be like Apple at one point because we can see the trend right now, right? We see that right now, for example, Tesla is at 23%, right? Cash ROIC, meaning operating cash flow divided by total invested capital. Invested capital means the total amount of capital that's been deployed into factories and into all the, uh, all the various infrastructure that Tesla's built up, right? Tesla's at 23% now. Apple is at 44%, which is phenomenal, right? No, no one does that right, right, right now, at least not among big tech, on that much invested capital, right? They've deployed over $250 billion and they earned 44% on that, right? So I think, you know, Tesla won't necessarily need to get to that, you know, $250 billion in total invested capital. I don't think they're actually gonna get that big in terms of how much capital is deployed. Um, but I think they can get to Apple-like ROIC, which is at 40 plus percent range. If they can get that, right? Um, and another big thing that we saw that really changes this entire discussion is the results from Q2 of 2021, right? We saw that they hit incredible profitability on deliveries of about 200,000 vehicles in Q2. 
and it blew away just about every estimate that I've seen. You know, it blew away my estimate, I know for sure. And I think it blew away yours as well. I think everybody was shocked, you know, including the biggest bulls out there, at how profitable Tesla is right now, right? On just car deliveries. And FSD right now is a very small portion of total, you know, profitability, or at least total revenue. And, um, you know, it's an increasing level of profitability. But again, that's based on what Tesla's already doing today, right? So they're at 23% cash return on invested capital today. And that's before all of these factors that are going to play uh, into profitability increasing even further, right? We know that they're going to have a lot of operating leverage, for example, because right now they're running below capacity, right? They're running about at 70% capacity. They built about 700,000 cars over the past four quarters. They have almost 1.1 million uh, production capacity right now. So that means that if they can simply procure enough battery supply, then they can reach or increase production without necessarily having to uh, spend additional OPEX to get to that increased production level. They have the labor capital and they have the, uh, you know, the plant property equipment already installed, right? They just need, you know, primarily more batteries to be able to get to that higher level of production of cars. So again, there's huge operating leverage built in, right? There's huge fixed cost absorption as well, right? Meaning more cars being produced using the same labor on the same lines, right? Which means that there are more fixed costs being absorbed into increased production levels. Um, so that all goes into increased capacity utilization, right? Um, then there's also an increasing mix of higher margin products, right? In Q2, we didn't even have a huge amount of, F, uh, of plaid deliveries. And the ones that we did have, you know, plaid deliveries, those were, you know, almost break even. I think they were actually negative margins because there were such low um, volumes, right? Now we have a completely different story in Q3 and Q4, and I think that's going to continue for some time. So there's going to be an increasing mix of high margin plaid deliveries in addition to FSD, which we already know about, right? And I think maybe there could be some upside in FSD take rate as well as people start to see what FSD beta, you know, 10, version 10 can do. Um, there's already a ton of marketing that's, you know, that's going to hit, uh, you know, social media as well now that everybody has the button. Um, so there could be increasing, you know, adoption of FSD, right? Right now it's very low. But, you know, again, they're continuously iterating on factory optimization as well, right? I remember, um, you know, in, in 2019, during one of the shareholder slide decks, uh, they actually showed the layout of the Shanghai factory and compared it side by side to how Fremont is, right? And in Fremont, it's like an entire jigsaw puzzle where you have this completely crooked, uh, you know, uh, line of progression, right, from start to finish, that alone is like a rat's race. It's like a maze that it has to go through, you know, and then the end product kind of comes out of the factory, right? Whereas in Shanghai, it's so much more intuitive. It's just in a straight line. The production process is in a straight line and then it exits out the factory. So that alone, again, increases, you know, production without necessarily needing additional resources to hit those higher levels of production, right? So I think Tesla is getting better and better at factory building too, factory optimization. Each factory that they build is iterative in nature because they've learned from the prior mistakes and fixed those mistakes going forward, right? Um, then there are localized supply chains. That's a given, right? That's a kind of a self, that's self-explanatory. And then soon to be, right? When, when Berlin opens up and when Austin open up, 
both of those factories are going to use the uh, single piece uh, die cast frames, right? So we see a level of engineering uh, innovation as well, where the cars are simply getting, the cars themselves are getting simpler and simpler to build. And that's why I think CapEx per car is gonna come down dramatically, right? And Tesla's already guided for that before in prior shareholder letters, where it looked at you know the Model 3 CapEx per unit built in Fremont, and then compare that to the Model 3 built in Shanghai, and compare that to the Model Y built in Shanghai, you can see a progression downward in CapEx per unit, right? So this is all, you know, this is all basically playing into ROIC. These are forces that I think are going to support ROIC dramatically, even as the ASP comes down over time, right? And ASPs have been coming down. And we can see that chart as well that you know, ASPs have come down consistently, you know, over the past eight years, right? Going from purely S and X to now, you know, threes and Ys with price cuts on all, you know, products across the board. Um, and so we've seen declining ASPs and yet we've seen increasing cash flow margins, right? So think about that. Like that's, that's really hard to grasp for most people because it's like, if you cut prices, then by definition, most people think that that means that they're sacrificing on margins, right? And we see the opposite of that on, on cash flow margins, that is. Even on gross margins too. Um, but cash flow margins is what, is what we're really interested in because I think operating cash flow is the number that Tesla is going to be valued on for many, many years, right? Because that's, you know, cash flow that's unaffected by CapEx decisions, stock-based comp, and other non-cash expenses, right? If you look at, for example, Amazon's shareholder letter, what's the first number that they talk about, right? Operating cash flow. That's the number that's most relevant for capital-intensive businesses like Tesla and Amazon uh, to focus on. And so I think if you look at cash flow margins, right, meaning operating cash flow divided by total revenue, right? Margins hit over 23% um, in as of Q2 on a trailing four quarters basis. And that's while ASPs have been coming down dramatically too, not just slightly, but dramatically. This happens because of operating leverage, right? This happens because there are fixed costs that are already being factored in to cash flow. And so when Tesla increases production capacity, for example, at Shanghai, right? Where we had this asset that's already being counted against Tesla on the balance sheet and they have fixed costs through depreciation, right? But if they haven't hit that higher level of production, then you have all these costs, but with no revenue to match those costs, right? And so while Tesla has ramped up, you know, Shanghai beautifully over these last couple quarters, we see huge amounts of operating leverage. And we can see that because cash flow margins are going up while ASPs are coming down. So, you know, if you put all of this together, right, I think that as Tesla rolls out the, um, you know, you know, more products, for example, uh, you know, obviously the Cybertruck, which is kind of in the same range as in ASP as where we are right now. So that's not going to bring down ASPs too much, I don't think. Um, but if Tesla can do the uh, Tesla Q, right? Which is what I hope they call the car. The oh, the, the cheaper one? Yeah, this is a big deal. And it looks like this one is actually, there's already working on the production line in Shanghai, or there's a bunch of rumors about that. So I don't know what your take on that is, but it seems like that could launch 
Like they're really downplaying that product, but that could launch a lot sooner than people realize. And that's the car that almost single-handedly gets them to this 10 million unit a year mark. I think we just saw a piece of news today hit that, uh, you know, Tesla was accelerating their, um, you know, their 4680, you know, uh, hiring on, on their job postings. So that's a, that's a good sign that, you know, maybe 4680 is moving along, um, you know, the way that we had hoped, right? Yeah. And I know they're still working on the machine that builds the machine. And I know they were working on some like bigger roller thing that wasn't working. And then they gave up and were like, screw it. Instead of getting the, this bigger roller to work at Cato, we'll put a bunch of smaller rollers in at Austin and just go for it and just start setting up Austin now instead of just waiting to like figure it out. Like this is a good enough way to build it. So I was like an interest, I've been meaning to make an episode on that, but that was an interesting scoop. So yeah. basically like the 4680 works, they're just figuring out how to make it cheaper and, and fast enough. Exactly, yeah. And that's the key to making the Model Q, the Tesla Q um, a reality because we need that battery supply. There's no way they could, they could possibly pull it off without you know 10Xing their battery supply right now, right? So um, again, when that model comes out, right, ASPs will come down, right? And they have been coming down for the last, you know, eight years, right? So they will come down even further, but because of all of these factors that I'm talking about here, operating leverage, capacity utilization, um, you know, diecast frames, which again, should cut down CapEx per unit as well. Um, these are all powerful forces that I think will support cash flow margins even as ASPs come down. And that's what we've already seen in the data. And this is, so this is not, it's not pure conjecture at this point because we have data now that's actually telling us that ASPs are coming down, cash flow margins are coming up, right? Um, they're not gonna go up in perpetuity. They're probably gonna, you know, taper off at some point, but that's why, you know, in my valuation sort of exercise that I'm kind of just walking through here, you know, this is what I'm thinking as far as what Tesla could be worth uh, today, assuming they can execute well enough to get to that 10 million uh, per year uh, unit mark, right? And I know Elon has floated the number for 20 million. So I'm just taking a, a, a hugely conservative. Yeah, by the end of the decade, it sounds like even. So this 10 million, yeah. And I love how you, you made it back the napkin math too. Like, and we're able to, like, it's such a complicated analysis, but you will it on like, 10 million cars, 35K ASP, 20% cash flow margin. I'll let you say the rest, but. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that, that's basically it. If you just take the numbers, right? If we assume that ASPs come down to 35,000, right now they're at 47,000. So that's a significant hit to ASPs, right? As you know, the mix of you know, the Tesla Q uh, dominate uh, you know, ASPs overall. So even if ASPs come down to 35,000 and we hit 10 million units per year, right? Total units. And if cash flow margins come down slightly to 20%, right? They're already at 23%, right? As of Q2. So let's say they actually come down to 20%. You know, the operating cash flow from just the auto business alone would reach $70 billion at that point. Okay. So 70 billion. And now the next part of it is the multiple, right? That's a super important question. Um, I think we've answered one question, which is, you know, what level of profitability can Tesla reach? Um, and so in my view, that could be 70 billion. That's, you know, again, conservative. Um, but again, also assuming they can hit that high level of production, which is at 10 million units per year. But the next question is, you know, what is the multiple that, you know, the, the stock will trade at on that 70 billion of cash flow? 
I believe that because we're at 23% cash ROIC today, and I know it might be confusing because you know cash flow margins are at 23% and cash flow ROIC is at 23%. Glad you noted that. <laughs> That's just coincidental. Um, but I'm not talking about you know margins anymore. I'm talking about ROIC, right? What's the return that the company generates per dollar of capital that they deploy? Right now it's at 23%. The rate of change is dramatic, right? We can see that in the chart. Um, I believe that because of these forces, operating leverage, you know, getting more and more efficient iteratively with factory optimization, um, with engineering, um, you know, innovation as well, making the cars simpler to build, right? With this huge diecast machine, um, I think that these forces are so strong that it will lead Tesla to reach Apple-like ROIC at 40% plus. So if you can get to 40% ROIC on increasing, on compounding all of that capital, right? The 50% per year, like what Elon is guiding for, then I think it's very reasonable for Tesla shares to hit a 40 multiple on their operating cash flow. I mean, there are many stocks that there there are far dumber companies than Tesla that that trade at 60, 70 times operating cash flow right now. So a 40 multiple on Tesla's 70 billion operating cash flow is not, you know, a stretch at all. And I love the Apple comparison because if you look at Apple's numbers right now, Apple has about uh, a couple hundred billion in revenue and they do about 66, 70 billion in earnings or EBIT. Their cash flow is probably like the same and they're worth 2.4 trillion. So it's like a 35 to 40 multiple. So it's almost like the numbers are exactly the same. Tesla will have that level of earnings and be valued at that range with that level of production. Like the, it would just be the, basically the same multiples that the market's giving Apple at this stage. And arguably... Tesla will have a lot more growth going on at that stage than Apple does today. And actually, uh, and the reason why Apple actually has lower uh, multiples, they, so Apple shares trade at lower multiples than Amazon, right? And by definition, obviously it's lower than, than Tesla right now. Um, and it's not because they uh, don't do good ROIC, right? They do the best ROIC. In fact, out of all megatech, they do the best at 44%. Um, I haven't checked Google, by the way, so maybe, maybe Google could be up there as well. Um, but at least out of Amazon, NVIDIA, um, and, you know, the usual suspects in the NASDAQ, right? Apple is the best in that, in that group. Um, so the, the ROIC is phenomenal, right? That capital efficiency is unbeatable. But the reason why Apple trades at a lower multiple than Amazon, who does lower ROIC, is because Apple is actually um, returning cash to shareholders now at a greater rate than investing in themselves, so if you look at their invested capital, right, I have a, you know, I can send you the, the charges of that as well, which you can show here. Um, their uh, invested capital topped out as of Q4 2017. And since then, their um, total capital that's on their balance sheet has actually been coming down. This happens when you, when a company pays out dividends and buybacks um, more than what they invest in plant property and equipment and other things like that. So... Apple doesn't even have as much uh, investment opportunities as they used to. So for, for years and years during the Steve Jobs years and then even up till even through 2017, they were still heavily reinvesting in themselves, right? So they were compounding that capital like Amazon, right? And, and, and Tesla, right? But then as of, the, as of Q4 2017, it's been all, you know, the invested capital has just been coming down. 
obviously shareholders love it, you know, because they, you know, it's Apple and, you know, they, they, they still earn phenomenal returns on capital. But Apple is not investing in themselves anymore the way that they used to. So that's why Apple shares trade at a discount to Amazon. Amazon is still reinvesting every single dollar of cash flow that they generate back into themselves. Same with Tesla. And that's why, you know, both companies right now trade at much higher multiples than, than, uh, than, App, you know, than Apple. So, you know, where, where are we going with all this? So because I think that Tesla will continue to grow at 50% per year, right? 50% um, on invested capital as well as, um, you know, 50% unit production on average over the next 10 years. Um, it's, it's very, very reasonable for them to trade at, you know, a, a 40 multiple, right, on their operating cash flow. So that leads us to, um, you know, a, a target market cap of $2.8 trillion, right? So discounted to today on an 8% discount rate, um, 1.2 billion diluted shares outstanding. You know, that puts us at, you know, fair value of 1167. That's my, that's my calculation. So Tesla shares today, in my view, are worth at least 1167 per share using today's, uh, you know, share count. So this is not counting a, ho a ton of FSD. This is not counting a lot of FSD at all. It's counting whatever FSD is already being booked today. Um, so I don't know what the rate, the, the estimates are. I'm not as, um, you know, up to speed on that. Like, you know, in terms of the estimates on what the take rate of FSD is today, but yeah. I don't think it's very high. Definitely below 50%, I would say overall, especially in like China. I know Elon mentioned it was super low. So for the fleet overall, I got to say it's like 25%. I think that's the best yeah. we can. Yeah. If anyone knows they should comment, but, and so that, and so basically what you're saying, the gist of what you're saying is. All of these tailwinds, like Plaid deliveries bouncing back, efficiency, getting more out of the factories, OPEX leverage, like all of that means Tesla's really at 40% ROIC today, normalized essentially. And even assuming no more soft margins, like we're already hitting that is what you're saying. It's just going to take a while for the numbers to catch up and all of these sort of like growing pains to even out. But you're right, basically, we're already seeing the breadcrumbs of that 40% number. I, I think that's, you know, and I, I look, this sounds crazy. Like if there's any like, serious finance professionals that are listening to this, like, you know, hitting, hitting 40% ROIC on, you know, a hundred billion dollars of total invested capital, that doesn't happen very often, right? That puts you in the league of mega cap tech. Only they can do this. Only, only NVIDIA, uh, Apple, um, Google, Amazon, um, you know, only these guys are able to deploy this much capital and earn these high returns on that capital. There's many companies that do really high ROIC, by the way. Um, you know, like I said, like I mentioned, Ferrari does 25% ROIC. That's better than Tesla is right now. And so you're saying this is like almost like you're freaking out because you crunch all the numbers, you think it's conservative, but it's almost too good to be true. And what I think is even funnier is, okay, late, let's, let's take a step back. 35,000 on 10 million cars is not assuming any autonomy because this whole theory of Elon being like an autonomous car is worth like $100,000, $200,000 because you can rent it out instead of utilizing it 5% of the time, we're utilizing it 25% of the time, 5x increase. So it's worth, you know, 5x more. So even if you just assume a little bit of that is true, then am I right to assume that's like, wait, Tesla could be generating, if they're basically, if they have factories that are pumping out robo taxis, 
from what we're seeing today at how good they are at pumping out not robo-taxis, this is like a 60% ROIC business, which is totally unheard of. Um, but that's kind of assuming the pricing dynamics stay and everything. But that's kind of like where my head's going in the Super Bowl case, right? That's exactly right. So that's why that's why the argument that I was making is that I don't think a big chunk of FSD is priced in, in into into today's valuation. So if if robo taxis actually happen, that is a super out of the money call option that's that's you know basically for free uh, in today's valuation. So if you buy Tesla shares today, you're not even you're still buying it at a discount to what I think they're going to do just from hardware sales alone just hardware sales at 10 million units and just cars we're not even talking about solar roof or mega pack or powerwall or tesla bots or whatever else they come up with and honestly we're even talking about just the model 2 honestly which i think is so interesting because if you really think out okay first of all the tesla semi that's a way higher asp so that might not be a million units but that's 200,000 units at a super high asp the cyber truck the model y you know, cheaper Model Y, um, maybe a smaller Cybertruck for Europe. What if they do something in India by the end of the decade? Like you, like the Model two, the Model Q. I love the Model Q instead of the Model Two. But like um, that to me adds up to like, wait, Tesla could be hitting 20, 25 million units a year at maturity. Um, that seems like kind of what their internal goal is, and a lot of those are high SP semis. So we're talking about a five trillion. Six trillion dollar at twenty-five million units a year, assuming that same forty percent ROIC thing. So I'm in the camp that I don't, I don't think I, I'm still skeptical about uh, Tesla hitting twenty million cars. I'm, I'm still, um, you know, kind of, you know, a little bit moderate on that goal, just because I think that there would be significant political risk. Um, I think at that point governments would step in because no, no automaker commands that kind of market share today, right? Um, even though we have Toyota and Volkswagen, who are the two behemoths of the auto industry, they dominate volumes, but neither, neither of them command, um, I mean, maybe within their specific segments where they operate, like obviously Toyota dominates the compact uh, sedan market, right, with huge market share. But overall, um, nobody gets more than 15%, um, you know, global market share. So. I think that's primarily because uh, governments have, you know, huge amounts of, um, you know, political like interests in maintaining these, you know, huge employers because they're huge employers, right? So the government of Japan, the governments of uh, of South Korea, um, maybe even the governments of uh, of Europe, in Germany, will do something. I th I think uh, to protect, um, you know, the existing players there. Because otherwise it would be devastating to the job market in these countries, you know. So I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm just playing it a little bit, you know, conservative and say that I don't think they're going to get to 20 million units, but I think 10 million is is definitely doable. Um, and okay. it wouldn't it wouldn't and destroy entire industries, I think. And to switch it gears a little bit on the energy business, because that's a lot more of an like we're not even talking about that as an option, but that's something that's been a lot more zero to one in a lot of ways. It just seems like a lot more slow and steady kind of incremental growth. But Elon has said that's could be as big as cars. And I definitely see the the TAM, the addressable market for energy um, and reinventing our entire grid, especially as our energy demands go up because of cryptocurrencies and just humanity expanding. Um, how big like are you thinking about the energy business at all? And how do you factor that into your thesis? 
Again, uh, so energy is another free option beyond what they're already doing today that's reflected in the operating cash flow and in the ROIC that we already see today. Because remember, the ROIC, which is a balance sheet, um, you know, it's a combination of cash flow and balance sheet data. So whatever the extent to which Tesla is already reporting the energy division is what I'm factoring in right now. Now, the forecast of operating cash flow is almost entirely um, auto. So again, I think energy, energy storage in, in particular, is yet another option, a call option, that is not being priced in. Because if you look at the number, I mean, I'm just trying to like, you know, the numbers are, are really, really simple, right? We have enough evidence today based on the numbers that we see based on Tesla's profitability right now that they can do 23% cash flow margins on their existing operations today. And their existing operations are dominated by the auto business, right? And mostly hardware sales and FSD is still a very small component of that. So again, this entire 2.8 trillion uh, market cap target that I'm talking about here is just taking the auto business today and extrapolating that to 10 million, you know, 10 million units. So the only big leap that I'm making here is assuming that Tesla can execute on the uh, the Tesla Q, the compact car. If they can do that, yeah. And um, if these, if I'm correct, and these forces that are supporting the margins, right, supporting the cash flow margins, play in, right, like the operating leverage. Um, and the ability to cut ASPs without sacrificing too much on cash flow margins because unit costs will be coming down, right? The CapEx per unit is coming down because of factory optimization and, um, and, and ve vehicular, uh, you know, innovation as well, right? With uh, the die cast frames and things like that. So, I, you know, again, this is all based on just the auto business alone, the 2.8 trillion market cap target. Uh, 10 million units, 40% uh, ROIC, 40 multiple on that on that cash flow. So again, just like FSD, um, I'm not putting a ton of of um, you know uh, of, of expectations on the energy side beyond what they're already doing today. And I don't think energy yet is 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 profitable, um, you know, from an EBIT standpoint. Um, so we'll see where that takes us because, I mean, energy has been a little bit frustrating to say the least um, because solar roof really hasn't taken off like we had hoped. Um, so it remains to be seen what happens with energy, right? So I'm not expecting a ton from energy until I see it, you know? So I, I just like to look at the numbers and try to understand what the numbers are telling me and use these ideas to see where, you know, these numbers will go in the future. And when you just in the in the practice of this, like we're taking like a twenty thirty number and going backwards with it. So, at what point does that become like ridiculous? Because I could say like, oh well, in twenty sixty they're gonna have a gazillion Tesla bots and they're gonna be worth eighty trillion. And so if we discount that back today, we're worth four trillion today. So, is it just all about pricing in the probability of that situation and that maturity stage occurring? And you're just like, well. The 10 million cars is a very high probability. Tesla bots not, so we're not going to discount cash flows from there. But how do you think about just in general where to start discounting the cash flows back from essentially? I mean, so for those types of things, I mean, it you have to use a very, very high discount rate because it's again a very uncertain um, outcome. 
And then also it's difficult to model the cash flows that would be associated with that, right? Because these are, um, you know, these are industries that don't exist right now, right? There is no autonomous industry, right? There's no, at least with autos, we can tell, like we know that, okay, every year about 80, uh, about 80 million units are sold worldwide. That's, that's a very tangible number. We know the auto industry total generates about $1.4 trillion of revenue. So these are very, um, you know, modelable uh, or forecastable numbers so that we can say, okay, if Tesla takes 10% market share or 15% market share, we can expect this much. But with like, you know, robots, <laughs> I have no idea what the, uh, the size of that industry would be other than it would be massive, right? So again, um, as in just my personal investment philosophy is to try to understand like what it is that is being priced in today right and you know if those if those expectations are low relative to what you think the company can do given tangible evidence that you see in the numbers then this becomes a a very high risk or a very high uh, reward to risk ratio of an investment. So based on this information that I see today, right, the numbers are in plain sight. Anybody can calculate this. They can see that cash flow margins are going up and they can see that ASPs are coming down. These are not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, inside information, right? Anyone can do this. So what that tells me is that this is a very, very interesting trend. Um, and this only happens when you're hitting scale. And so when something makes sense to you, right? For example, electric vehicles just simply make sense, right? These are, these cars are better for the environment, right? They reduce pollution, right? They, they, you know, help solve, you know, the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases, right? Um, and they're better cars, right? They're better performing cars. They're faster. They handle better. They last longer. They save money. So basically it makes sense fundamentally why EVs should take over in market share. Right. Then the question is, who's the, you know, the best in class product, you know, producer of EVs. And obviously the answer to that is we know Tesla, right? So if, if a company has a product that just fundamentally makes sense, right, it's solving a, a fundamental problem in the world. It's addressing an unmet need. Um, it's reducing costs. It's improving the way people do things currently. Um, or just in general, if it's, you know, creating or injecting joy into the lives of people, right? These are all reasons why a company succeeds. And if they have the best in class product in that, then it makes sense for that company to continue to eat market share. And so that's why when you kind of model out 10 million units, it, the only reason why we're doing that, because we can say that for any company, oh, like the Jaguar I-Pace will sell 5 million units, you know, in five years from now, it's eight, eight years from now. Right. Anyone can do that. Right. But, you know, the question is, is are they best in class? Do they have the best product in the market versus others? Um, do they have the best, you know, brand loyalty? Right. Um, all of these factors, you know, if they, if you're checking off all of these boxes, then it makes sense for us to be able to, you know, model out these really high production and delivery numbers because it makes sense for Tesla to usurp all of that market share. And that's why we're doing it in this way. But we can't say that for all companies, though. Um, so if you can say that with confidence that, you know, if today's market cap 
is pricing in, for example, um, I don't know, 3 million units. You think they can easily get to 8 to 10 million units based on what they're doing today, based on the investments that they're making today, um, based on the demand that we're already seeing in their, for their cars today, right? Then it makes sense that, okay, the market's pricing in something that's way lower than what they could actually do and what they have plans on doing. And that they've said, you know, and that they've said that, you know, publicly, that our plan is to, for example, for 4680, to ramp up to 10 terawatt hours by next year, right? Well, I think it was supposed to be this year, but I guess it's postponed to next year. But, you know, that's the idea here. And then up to one gigawatt hour of, of, uh, of battery storage, you know, of battery production. So again, what are we using all this battery capacity for, right? So if companies are making these investments and they're really, really serious about um, what they're doing, then as long as they have a best-in-class product, they will usurp market share. And there's one thing you mentioned that I think is the most important that I is leadership. The CEO, like, like look at Elon Musk's stock compensation package. It's ridiculous. Like, and it's almost funny that people think it's so ridiculous and out of the blue, but in retrospect, it'll be like, oh, of course the CEO who was incentivized to, you know, make his EBIT go up 100x did that. And the CEO who wasn't didn't do that. And like, and who had a, that much skin in the game. But I just think like, how would you have seen Tesla before all these numbers came out? Because in some ways it's obvious now when you look at all these numbers, like, oh my God, like this is like the most savagely profitable business ever, especially given that they're like making these complex hardware products in-house, not just selling software. Elon Musk was sort of the secret sauce. And like the clue to all of that was just understanding, engaging leadership. So I just think that's so important, especially for my brain, like coming from the startup investing world where I'm like literally not even looking at financials when I write a check into a startup. So that's like, but you still, it's still a lot of the same qualities you say, but I feel like all of those qualities tie back to leadership and specifically the CEO. And that's just like, I don't know. That's why I think Tesla's so, I love saying that like you get a free call option on the greatest inventor alive and whatever he invents by owning Tesla stock because he's invested in Tesla stock. And so that is just such a game changer. And like, isn't he, isn't he incentivized to hit like 600 billion and that's market cap, but like a hundred billion in EBITDA or something. Do you know his stock compensation package? It's something ridiculous. The like last tranche. Yeah. I think it's around 14 billion of adjusted EBITDA. Um, I'd have to double check that. I don't have the numbers in front of me here. I can probably pull it up here, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the point of that though, is that I think it's, it's super, super important to a, you know, invest in companies that are led by the owner and operator, like there, there's that the owner is also the operator of the company. So that aligns incentives, right? Between the CEO and the shareholders. And, you know, the fact that Elon was paid entirely in stock, um, based on market cap and fundamental milestones, it's the ultimate alignment of shareholder interests with management. There's no better, there's no better system to be paying uh, executive management than to pay them in stock based on, you know, those two, uh, you know, targets, right? So there's no, again, these are, these are fundamental, like long-term investment uh, principles that I think everybody should be following. You know, is the company being led by an owner operator? Are they being paid in salaries or are they being paid in stock? And are they being paid in stock based on milestones that, you know, are in the shareholders' interests? 
And so if all those questions are yes, then I think there's a lot, you know, to look into for these companies. And okay, so I looked at the stock comp package, 175 billion revenue, 14 billion EBITDA, you were right, and like 650 billion market cap or like the top. It's like they're they're gonna crush all those. So that's that's funny. Um, but in terms of like business case study, um, how accurate would you say that this is like even beyond Michael Jordan or like there isn't even a good sports analogy for potentially if Tesla pulls this off, how all time this will be like in the business hall of fame, let alone the fact that Elon like started in the hardest industry, like is also running SpaceX, which I want to ask you about at the very end. But like how all time is this when you're talking about 40% ROIC, just so people can get a flavor for how often we're going to see a type of business like this get created. This is, this is very rare. I mean, this is very, very rare for a company that can come up like this attacking a massive, uh, industry like the auto industry. Um, and then inventing entirely new industries like autonomous driving um, and battery storage at the utility scale, right? We don't have this, you know, in existence, right? So it's it's just never been done before. And on top of that, remember, um, there's been a long list of companies that have gone bankrupt in the auto industry. It's a long and sad, you know, story of multiple companies over the years who have tried this and failed, right? But the reason why Tesla you know, succeeds, right, is because A, the time is right, right? People are focused on you know, climate change as a major issue, um, but also because uh, they did something that's different, right? This was a company that decided that we need to attack a major problem that we're facing, right? Even if you don't believe in climate change, everybody agrees that we want cleaner air in our cities. There's, that's just not a controversial you know, uh, issue. Everybody wants cleaner air. No one wants smog. So whether you're Republican, Democrat, or independent, doesn't matter. Everybody agrees that this is something that we want, right? So again, it makes sense. It's it, for the first time ever, you know, we're doing something that's different. Even though it's a car, it looks like a car and it, and it operates just like a car. It's software on wheels and it doesn't pollute. It does better than regular gas cars, right? It's faster. It handles better. It turns corners better. It's safer. Right, that's a huge point of view, right? Because there is no, you know, it's not top heavy, and it's not front heavy. It's just, you know, bottom heavy, which makes it better for safety, right? Yeah, that's actually what I try and sell everybody on. When I meet new people who are, like don't know about Tesla, and they're like, "Should I get one?" I'm like, "You have kids, right? Wouldn't you want them driving around the safest car ever?" Like, that's it. That's like the and people like anyway. Okay, I kind of gotta go, but I'm I really want to pick your brain on Starlink valuation. What, what do you, if you had to value SpaceX and Starlink, okay, SpaceX, 74 billion in their last funding round. They're probably doing two to three, 4 billion on their launch business, mostly government contracts. Starlink right now owned by them, 120 million ARR, 100K customers can scale to a few million, get to a few billion in ARR in the next couple of years. I just invested in SpaceX, so I'm being super selfish here. And I want, I think you're super smart on valuation. So I'm like, okay, how would you think about valuing SpaceX? Would you invest at, let's say a hundred billion um, yeah, I would jump at that opportunity to, to invest in SpaceX at $100 billion. That's a steal, I think. Um, again, these are just ridiculously, like, first of all, it's hard to fathom the, uh, the impact this is going to have because, again, these are brand new industries that we don't even know where it's going to take us, right? But again, Starlink is, a, is another piece of the puzzle. 
which I know SpaceX wants to, you know, to, to um, spin off, right, into its own IPO, so that SpaceX can be just purely focused on Mars, right, or, or also the moon as well, but mostly Mars after that. Um, but uh, yeah, these, I mean, look, our, the, the way that I always think of investments, right, is, again, going back to first principles thinking, are we solving a fundamental problem, right? Is there an unmet need that this company is attacking, right? The bigger the problem, like you say all the time, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity, right? So again, um, you know, providing broadband to people that don't have access to broadband, there's a huge, huge market for that. Um, and, you know, for especially for com countries like India, for example, who, um, you know, don't have the best infrastructure, right? Um, it makes so much more sense to go, you know, the Starlink route um, because it's just, there's no, there's no infrastructure that you need to really lay out, right? It's just, you know, having the right, you know, devices that can be, um, that, that, you know, that can, you know, work on that bandwidth. So again, it makes a lot of sense for, for a lot of people throughout the world to be using Starlink broadband and it's going to finally, you know, connect the rest of, you know, the billion or so people that don't are already have a connection to the internet. Um, this will provide that in, a, in an affordable way too. So again, again, it checks off all the, you know, the major boxes. Are we solving an unmet need? Are we improving people's lives? Um, are we cutting costs, right? And that's a huge other part of it too as well. So I think all of those are a yes. It's, it's a no-brainer to me. Okay, I think we already know our next collab, which is going to be valuing SpaceX. So I'm going to work on creating a set of financials for SpaceX and projections and figure out the best I can do on that and then give them to you and then we could try and value SpaceX. I just feel like that would be epic. But um, but anyway, thank you so much for this episode, Meyer. I know the hyper changers are going to love it. Really appreciate the time. Everyone should follow you on Twitter. If I was in the market for hiring a new analyst, I would be hiring you. Um, in instantly or running a dope hedge fund or portfolio um because yeah i'm so yeah anyway <laughs> uh okay um thank you so much Meyer. really appreciate it though have a have a great night we'll talk soon thanks thanks for having me back